Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Now we'd love to welcome you to Bite Into It. We've got Joe Eaton. Good evening. Good evening. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Welcome to the show. Tonight, we're going to be hearing from world famous AI researcher Toby Walsh, who has just had a new book published. It's called Faking It. And we can't wait to read it. Actually, I'm already halfway through, but uh, need to race to the end there. We're also going to find out more about the proposed crackdown on the provision of digital wallets and what it means for providers and users. Joe, do you have a digital wallet? I do. On my on my little watch, which feels very futuristic every time I do it. Nice. Yeah, I've got a couple of them too. I love the watch swipey technology. It is good. It's a game changer when you go running and you don't need to carry a wallet. Oh, yeah. You, yeah, want a coffee with your friends afterwards. Well, we've got a cracking show coming up. Let's get into the news. Joe, what's been happening? Yeah, breaking news today. Uh, the High Court has thrown out something we've previously discussed, which was the controversial Victorian tax on electric car owners. So under this tax, uh, drivers were expected to pay around two cents a kilometre at the time of annual registration payments, depending on the type of car. So two electric vehicle drivers took the Victorian government to the High Court and they said that the tax amounted to an excise and apparently that's something that can only be levied by the Commonwealth. The that's high... very interesting. Yeah, yeah the intricacies I, I of... had no idea. And we'll have to look um, up the definition of excise later. Yeah, yeah. And so High Court has found that the tax is an excise and therefore can't be imposed by the state. So the EV drivers have, have won. Fascinating, because there have been all sorts of hiccups in the implementation of that particular tax with people needing yeah, to try and estimate and how how many kilometres they're going to run and then how to, and, how to prove that and, and report it. people who were out of the country who hadn't re-registered their cars that were getting their registrations cancelled because they hadn't paid but they didn't know and because they weren't here and all sorts yes. of just weirdness. Apparently the, there is some news from... Uh, the AFR Crypto Summit? Yes, there's a crypto summit that started Monday this week and Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones used the opportunity of attending to announce the government's long-anticipated crypto regulatory regime. The requirements include any cryptocurrency exchanges operating in Australia with more than 5 million in aggregate or over 1,500 per user. So they will be required to have an Australian financial services licence, which means that that then opens them up to a bunch of standards and rules that they now need to meet around disclosures, around solvency and cash reserve needs, submission of financial accounts and management of conflicts of interest. It's very timely, um, some would perhaps say overdue, but in the wake of things like the Sam Bankman-Fried yeah. news and the vulnerability of people with their money in some of these crypto exchanges, it's, I think, a necessary step when you've got so many consumers in a space and the risks are quite high. So I think it's got to be a good thing. Has there, have you gauged much reaction on the on the socials? Yeah, I mean, oh, there's the usual people coming pro and against regulatory oversight and reform mm. in areas. And um, 
Of course, we don't want uh, regulatory requirements to stifle innovation, but I don't think that's what we're talking about yeah. in this area. Some people are also frustrated that you know they want to escape regulation and um, escape oversight by using these sort of means. So anytime there's more of that, inherently they feel less free or, or some you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they could that put sort of general. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they could put more their arguments forward better than I could because I definitely come down on the consumer protection side of things. Speaking of which, after almost three years of negotiations, the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, and NBN Co have agreed new pricing terms and some non-pricing related terms as well. These changes are going to have a direct impact on NBN users, which, let's face it, is many of us, not just uh, consumers, but uh, businesses as well. So some of those impacts will be price drops. They are scrapping connectivity virtual circuit bandwidth charges for services operating at 100 megabits per second or more starting December 1. Those charges will also disappear for other services by mid-2026. And there's a lot of this sort of phased approach throughout the new agreement. They're also making the minimum plan speed 25 slash 5 megabits per second, so 25 you know megabits per second down, 5 upload. They're also introducing a basic voice and data service at about half the price of their current entry-level broadband package. And that's a real issue in terms of accessibility to NBN. You know, first of all, there's being able to get on the NBN and having in your area at all. But then, you know, if the basic plans are already set quite high, then that can be a second barrier to entry. So that's a really great win for the ACCC. That's excellent. Mm. There's a range of other changes, um, including some protection from future price hikes built in. If you're interested in that, it's covered in a lot of places. One of them is itnews.com.au. Head out there and check out the news from the ACCC themselves as well. Uh, so that's it for news this evening. We've kept it local, we've kept it relevant, and uh, we don't want to wait too long to get to our amazing interviews this evening. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Thanks for tuning in. You'll be glad you did because Toby Walsh is one of the world's leading researchers in artificial intelligence. He is a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales and leads a research group at Data61, Australia's Centre of Excellence for ICT Research. He's written several books, many of them touching on AI, and has a new book called Faking It, Artificial Intelligence in a Human World. And in it, he explores all the ways that AI fakes it. He's not going to be faking it with us tonight. We've got him on the line. Welcome to the show, Toby. Thank you very much. I assure you this is the real Toby Walsh. Excellent, excellent. Uh, well, we'll throw in some curly ones and, and just uh, just to test and make sure that's, that's, uh, that's legit as we go. Now, I've got to uh, start with a confession. I have not finished reading Faking It yet, but I'm really enjoying everything that I've been reading so far. So the book talks about it starts off talking about the artificiality of artificial intelligence and you you do a bit of unpacking of, of the name. You can't go anywhere and escape the expression AI these days and everyone's considering it and what it means in our lives. How did you even begin to grapple with this topic in this inflection moment of large language models going wild? 
Yes, well, the, the book largely wrote itself. It said there's such an interesting collection of ways that AI is entering our lives and some really fascinating conversations and concerns that people are starting to have. And I thought it was really important that we should try and open these conversations up and at least explain you know, what the technology can do and what it can't do, because there's lots of, unfortunately, a lot of people's understanding is driven by Hollywood, and, and that is still fantasy, and the reality is, is much more down to earth. And when we think about AI, artificial intelligence, people tend to focus on the eye, the intelligence. I'm not surprised because that's quite an important part of us, our intelligence was what got us to be here. But I don't think we put enough emphasis on the artificial in the sense that it's going to be quite different, quite artificial to human intelligence. And that's really important to understand and to, to recognize. And that, that once you realize that the intelligence that we're going to build in machines is perhaps going to be, have quite a different flavor to human intelligence, then that answers a number of questions about you know, where we should hand responsibility over and how we should approach it. You're right. Um, it really does start opening up the conversation around AI as an augmentation of our current capabilities. And that's already a helpful concept in framing how these are going to be involved in our day-to-day lives and particularly our working lives, I think, where so many of us are being asked to help understand and navigate through what does generative AI mean for our jobs. Tell us a bit how you're thinking about the strengths in artificial intelligence and, and what we might hand over to machines. Well, when you, when you realize it's going to be a different type of intelligence, then you should ask the thing, well, what are its strengths and what are its weaknesses? And they, some of those things are quite complementary to, to humans. So there's lots of dull, repetitive things. The machines are perfect for doing. Humans never like doing whatever we're very good at doing that we should allow machines to do. And equally, there are certain things where we shouldn't hand those decisions to machines. We shouldn't make you know, very high-stakes decisions, whether they be in the judiciary, in our welfare system, or, or on, our, on our battlefields. Those are really high-stakes decisions. And at the end of the day, I think we want to keep humans, accountable humans, in the loop there. And if we do remove humans in the loop, even if machines are making better decisions, I think it's not the sort of world that I uh, suspect many of your listeners want to wake up in. I suspect you're right. When people start grappling with AI, I think we can see them try all sorts of wild things to varying degrees of success and and some of them a bit misguided, but maybe it's hard to realise that in the moment. You mentioned so many examples in the book and I'm only partway through, uh, but one that you brought up was a Stanford University study on AI and it was being applied to trying to identify sexual orientation, a gaydar, if you will. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about this this particular example and what what broader ethical challenges you see in developing AI systems? Let me say right up that there's just so many things wrong with the idea that you could build a computer to be able to recognize from a picture, from actually there were pictures that were were scraped from dating websites, the sum of sexuality, whether they were homosexual or heterosexual. I mean, it's wrong on so many different levels. To think that sexuality is a binary thing for a start, completely wrong. (laughs) Um, And to think that it's something that's decided by your appearance. Of course, it's not decided by your appearance. That's something you should be deciding it. And then even supposing that you could do this, which is, I've already given so many this way, mm. you shouldn't be doing this or you couldn't be doing this. It's so wrong on a moral sense because we know there are a bunch of countries where homosexuality, for example, is still illegal, still punishable in a couple of countries by death. So to make it available at all 
that could allow people, wrongly and perhaps in some cases, many cases, to be able to try and identify someone's sexuality. It's just an invitation for misuse. How anyone thought that you should do this and how it would be an acceptable or practical or useful thing to do is beyond me. But we need to be aware. I mean, it was proposed, a serious study out of a respectable university. And, and so we have to be very cautious. And we never ask this question often enough. Just, just because you can, should you? Yes. Um, yeah. Just because you can try and build something, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe the world would be a better place if we didn't go down that road. And I always say to people that technology is not destiny. It's about making appropriate choices. And there are some choices where technology will bring benefits into our lives will save us doing dull repetitive things and free us up to focus on the better things in life but there are other places where technology actually i suspect will take us to a place where uh, we know what it's going to be it's the world that you know authors like Orwell and Huxley have warned us about well thank you for using that example because i think sometimes in the excitement of applying new techniques people can get a bit carried away and i don't know where the ethics committee was on that particular example <laughs> But there, there are probably um, areas that are, are less straightforward to navigate and that cause me more concern as a you know, community journalist. And, and those are around deep fakes and the concept of mass persuasion. We've seen deep fake technology improve before our eyes over the last few years. And we know that we face significant challenges in recognising fake content already. How do you, I guess, envision society coping with the growing prevalence of deep fakes? And what steps do you think should be taken to mitigate this? I don't think there's one answer to this mm. question. It's a very important question because we are seeing our society increasingly polarised. We are seeing these technologies being used to enslave us. And the technology is only getting better and better and more and more convincing. So we're going to be fooled more and more often. So we're going to have to prepare ourselves for a world in which the things that you see, you have to entertain the idea, are perhaps going to be fake. Things you hear are not going to be real. And so there's a variety of things. Education is going to be really important to educate people to, to actually you know, ask the right questions and, and check the veracity of what they're looking at. Law is going to be necessary. Uh, why is it that we don't have a lot of fake money? Because actually it's quite easy to fake money these days. These colour printers and so on can, can, can make fake money. Well, partly because we put very harsh penalties, um, which we prosecute very strongly, for people who make fake money, because we know if we undermine the credibility of, of money, it's not going to be a good thing for our financial system. Mm-hmm. Well, equally, we're going to have a lot of fakes that are going to, if we're not careful, undermine the credibility of our politicians. Fake be fakes that have politicians saying stuff that destroys their reputation or pictures that seem to be very compromising that are fake. And that is going to be very damaging to our democracy. So maybe, again, we need to have you know rather strict rules and harsh penalties to dissuade people from doing that. Technology is going to come along. We are going to have things like digital watermarks that are going to be embedded into the fabric of our devices to help us be able to shift the real from the fake. But unfortunately, those technologies like watermarking are going to take a a couple of years to become widely relevant. And so we're going to, in the meantime, we're going to have to be much more cautious ourselves. Very well thought out response there. This is great. And obviously that's just one end of a spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum of um, deep fakes, we've got, you know, photo filters and uh, little things that, that make our skin look a bit better and we're seeing AI versions of that. So perhaps there are some benign elements on the spectrum. A little bit of me hopes that 
it maybe it gets so bad that people realize that social media is just full of this stuff. And that's just where we get entertained. There are just, you know, deep fakes and memes that are there to amuse us. And we don't actually believe any of the stuff that we see there. And if we want to get news, we go to the places that we trust. We go to our local media, we go to the ABC, wherever it is that we actually trust to have done the legwork to actually have found the real stuff for us. Look, I suspect you're right, and I think we'll see similar social trends. You know, the backlash against the overly photoshopped portrait is already with us. You know, we've seen that sort of trend come through. We have talked a bit about, you know, artificiality already. You mention philosophers such as Nick Bostrom and David Chalmers advancing the edge theory that we hear a bit from Silicon Valley, that we might be in a high-fidelity simulation of the real world rather than the actual world. Now, this is a fun thought experiment until people start posing this as a real sort of thing. I don't particularly want to get into that at the moment because I think our listeners have probably already heard a lot of it of it and a lot of comments from Elon Musk. But what might you be able to tell us about other philosophical divides in AI research at the moment that we might not know so much about? There is some concern about the existential risk that AI might pose to our society. And and some of my colleagues have issued open letters warning. Well, actually, something that I I share those concerns. I actually, actually much more the risks, I think, are much more mundane, the ones that we've already just talked about, things like misinformation and, and our democracy being a, a, attacked by the use of deep fakes and the like. I'm, I'm not concerned that the robots are going to rise up and take over the planet because robots do only what we tell them to do. They, they don't have any, they're not biological, they don't have any desires of their own. It's always a human somewhere behind who's given them those goals. And maybe, maybe it was a stupid human, but it's human stupidity that I worry more about <laughs> than, than artificial superintelligence. As much as I might agree with you, it's still very reassuring to hear you say it. <laughs> There's so much written about AI now, not all of it credible. Um, obviously, your books are a fantastic place to start. But is there one source of information on AI that you particularly appreciate and can recommend to our listeners? Ah, uh... <laughs> There are a couple of good newsletters that you can subscribe to. Um, there's one called AI Weekly. That's quite a good summary. So, uh, the thing is, AI is such a fast-moving world. Yes. It used, to, it used to be these things were monthly, now they're weekly. And indeed, I've got a few few newsletters. I get these now nowadays that are daily because it's just to keep on top of the development. So I think that's one of the, the exciting things about AI is not only is the, is the scale of the disruption that's happening, it's going to be as disruptive, I suspect, as the Internet or disruptive as electricity, but the speed with which it's happening, it's happening so quickly. It's not a coincidence that ChatGPT was the fastest growing app ever. It's now in the hands of over a billion people. And we've never, I think, faced technological-driven changes, which are going to happen so fast. And you could get the technology so quickly into the hands of so many people. I had another question. You, you mentioned that humans program the robots and, and that's the area that we should maybe focus our attention and, and where things can get problematic. Something that has been problematic is the corporate systems surrounding the rise of generative AI tools. And you had done a bit of unpacking what went behind chat GPT and open AI paid workers in Kenya, less than US $2 an hour to identify offensive and toxic content. This is not a news story in tech that moderators of content are horrendous underpaid and exposed to frightful sorts of things. I wonder, you know, how we think about AI being the solution to the problem that, you know, AI hasn't solved yet there. 
Yeah, um, I mean, it was, it was disappointing that OpenAI did commit these harms in many respects. Not only were they not paying these people very well, but the harms of seeing this content, being able to try and moderate content that was going to damage them psychologically. This is the challenge that we have with AI. It's always a double-edged sword because once we have built such technologies, then you can talk about many positive examples. I was at a workshop of the Australian Federal Police where now... Australian federal police officers don't have to look. Lots of the really challenging content that they scan through to find evidence of child pornography, evidence of child sex trafficking and so on. They've now got algorithms that they've been trained to look through that can save them having to see some of this imagery and save the harm that it's actually doing to those those police officers. It's always a difficult game that we have to play to balance those positives with the, the costs as well of building those technologies. I did not know about that particular example. That's um, I, I guess I, I have to get uh, further through the book and read more about some of the operations in Australia. That's fantastic. So companies are trying to navigate these new technologies and determine where they're best applied to solve problems or improve processes. Have you seen any good models that help people identify the sort of pain points that are quite well shaped for generative AI solutions? There's many. There's a whole number of ethical frameworks and my books talk about some of them. The, The problem and the challenge is that how you apply them to a particular business setting or a particular business, because the harms, the challenges tend to be very specific for the application. So there, there are lots of you know, well-meaning ethical frameworks that talk about principles like transparency and fairness. That's all, that's all very good, but to actually working, what does that mean? If I'm an insurance company offering people insurance, what does that actually really mean in terms of doing that in a fair, equitable way? And so that interpretation is something actually that there aren't checklists that you can run through. You actually have to work out for those particular business what to do. And there, there are some you know, not-for-profits like the Great Institute that um, helping companies think through those, those difficult choices. Well, there's no shortcut to deep thinking in the end of the day. Not even AI is going to shortcut that for us. No, but it begins by asking the questions. It begins by realising technologies are going to you know, raise these challenges and, and thinking carefully to them. And then the other thing that's really important with, with technologies like AI is to realise they're not like software that we used to build. When you build a spreadsheet, it worked, and you gave it to people, and you didn't have to worry about it. You didn't have to go back and check it was still working. But, but with AI, the world is changing. The, the AI changes the world. The model is continually adapting to the world. So you have to go back continually monitor it and say, well, wait, is it still being fair? Is it still actually doing what we intended it to do? Because the, the world has now actually moved on. Wow. AI imitating life, imitating AI. Yeah. We have been speaking with Toby Walsh. His new book is called Faking It, Artificial Intelligence in a Human World. It's published by Black Ink Books and can be found in all reputable bookstores. It is a cracking read, at least so far. Toby, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us this evening. Pleasure. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We're about to speak with Professor Steve Worthington from Swinburne University. He's an expert in the field of marketing and financial services distribution. His research includes various aspects of financial services, particularly focusing on electronic channels and payment systems right up our alley. Tonight, he's here to help us understand the proposed regulations on digital wallets. Welcome to the show, Steve. 
My pleasure. Well, thanks for having me on. It is great to have you. There's been a bunch of changes, well, there's a bunch of uh, proposals really on on how digital wallets should behave and first of all, we should say that digital wallets, you know, people might recognise as things like their Apple Pay, their Google Pay and other digital payment services. Is FPOS considered this sort of service or is it something that's come beforehand? We'll start with the big picture Mm. and then drill down to that particular question. I mean, really what we've seen in the past, what, 50 years is the decline of cash as a payment there's still a lot of value being cash as a store of value, but nevertheless we've seen a decline in that and basically replaced by payment cards, both credit and debit cards. And what we're finding now, for example, some figures the other day, cash accounts for just 13% of all payments made in 2022, and that's because of the increasing use of payment cards. But then we've got all this between digital wallets come along, and now we know that payments using digital wallets, or watches as well, are up to 35% of the total card transactions in the June quarter for this year. So what we've seen that people have moved along from cash, they moved into cards, and now they're moving gradually into using digital wallets. Is there much information about the nature of who is most likely to be using digital wallets? Well, I saw something the other day which said something like, it's across all age groups, but in particular that age group between, say, 18 and 30, which is passing the most uh, usage of that particular product. Oh, that is interesting. I thought this one might buck the trend of younger people leaning in because there are plenty of older people I know who are very excited about the digital watch technologies and gotten right on board saying this is the Dick Tracy future that they were promised. Yes, indeed. It it is often the case. It's it's a well-promised thing. But I think it is across the board in terms of age groups anyway. I have read it predominantly with a younger audience. That's great to know. So in what ways are digital wallets behaving, you know, or being regulated differently to other payment options at the moment? The Reserve Bank of Australia has a thing called the Payment Systems Board, which is chaired by the governor of the Reserve Bank. They only put a shoot off of the argument from their normal uh, board meetings. And that is responsible for policy uh, of payments and payment systems. They have done lots of policy work in terms of cards, both debit and credit cards, and that's been their expertise area. There's no coverage so far of any kind of regulation of the digital wallet. So this is something where the RBA is thinking we need to get involved here to make sure that there's some good competition, there's good innovation and good productivity across that whole payment systems. That sounds like a good thing for consumers. What sorts of regulation might be imposed? Because that might help us understand the benefit. Well, one thing to bear in mind here, you mentioned it before, we've both got uh, Apple Pay and Google Pay. As I understand it, Apple Pay is by far the biggest, the huge majority of people using Apple rather than Google. Now, the banks do pay a very small fee to Apple for the use of their card products that they issue. So there is a, a very small amount of this pay for every $100 spent. Apparently, money has to be passed to, to Apple. That's not the case with Google. So I guess the RBA is thinking, well, there's obviously the RBA has a big influence on merchant service fees when you're paying by cards. And they want to see that there's not the distortion of those fees because of people are using digital wallets. Well, that sounds like a good thing, particularly when you're talking about a lot of these companies being international ones operating within our jurisdiction, I guess you'd say. Is it likely that people start shopping around for devices? You know, is this is this the sort of feature that people will change their mind about which device they get because of the fees involved or all of the fees invisible to users? 
Well, at the moment, all those fees are invisible to users. Uh, Merchant service fees are are partially visible. Uh, Of course, we've seen a big upsurge, I believe, in terms of surcharges being made on uh, payment by cards and indeed payment by digital wallets because they're linked to the cards they are. So we might see something along the lines of the way the the RBA has intervened through the payment system board into into the merchant service fees for cards, similarly with the merchant service fees for digital wallets. And that's an attempt then to get a grip of, well, exactly what is this costing us as consumers and what is it costing the banks and who's getting the benefits from this, et cetera, et cetera. So I think they'll be keen to spread their net of regulatory influences into digital wallets. And then if we look at competition, you know, it sounds like there are two major players in this space in Australia at the moment with Apple and Google. Mm -hmm. Are there any other, you know, strong contenders and how might the government encourage a bit more competition? Well, that's just a really, really good question. It, in a way, it parallels the cards market. The two big players are MasterCard and Visa. There are some subsidiary players, American Express and Diners Club, but nevertheless, uh, I don't know what the answer to that would be. There is, for example, a uh, Chinese WhatsApp, isn't it, as a payment site? So, um, you know, there are possibility of other players coming into the market in Australia, but at the moment it's been, as I said, been captured by Apple particularly. I think the RBA would like to see that it doesn't devolve into a monopoly rather than just a duopoly. Yes. And have you done any research, Steve, into um, services like Venmo that involve direct money transfer? I mean, I think it's clear they haven't taken off in Australia because our banks have been quick to get onto account-to-account transfer. But are there any similar issues in that space? Not that I'm aware of. I must confess I've not done a lot of research into that area, but I do agree with you that the RBA is already moving to go for pay-to-pay, pay directly between people, and that would be one way forward, which would avoid both the payment card um, duopoly and the digital wallet duopoly. That's something I think we should look into, and it's coming along, and hopefully it'll give us more options as consumers to pay the way we want without incurring extra costs. Mm. One thing I wonder when I think about this, you know, we're talking about big banks, we're talking about massive technology companies, it's a battle of the titans. What sort of bargaining power do Australian banks have when they're negotiating merchant service fees with these companies? In, in the cards area, there is a basic thing called interchange, which is done, which is dictated by both Visa and MasterCard. And then it's up to the, the banks, the big banks, particularly issuing cards, to decide what fees they want to charge different kinds of retailers or different kinds of goods and services providers. So if you are a, a huge player like to the big two supermarket groups here, you don't really, you have a very, very low uh, merchant service fee, which means you don't need to surcharge. But if you're running a local cafe, you'll have a much higher, or at least a fairly much higher, uh, merchant service fees and that's why sometimes people like in cafes are putting a surcharge on every uh, card uh, payment you make. So I think what the what the RBA is looking to do is to, to make, try to control and, and, and observe and, and research and find out exactly what is the, the digital wallets, where is the value to the consumer and where is the value to the players in that market and what are the implications for, for example, just for cash again and indeed for the use of cards. Uh, the RBA is trying to get into low uh, debit card fees, but the banks and the merchants are quite reluctant to move into that area. So there are, they are trying to persuade uh, to get the merchant service fees down, but nevertheless, I think they want to cast their net into the, the sort of digital wallet arena as well. 
Very interesting stuff. I wonder who has been giving advice to the federal government on this front? Surely the banks are there. Do, are you aware of any submissions from the ACCC? Uh, not at the moment, no. Uh, the current initiative by the government is looking to have some people coming back to them by the end of this year. And in fact, I read somewhere, I think they want to try and get some legislation in by the end of the year. So they've put these ideas out for consultation and it's up to people to put some thoughts into this and then put them back into the uh, RBA. As I said, I think they're keen to move this on and do something that's proactive rather than reactive to that particular growth of um, digital wallets. Sounds like a good idea. Well, thank you for unpacking what can be quite a dense little niche subject there. We've been speaking with Professor Steve Worthington from Swinburne University. Thanks for your time tonight. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We're up to weird news of the week. And what did we find? Sports news. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's novel. It's novel for us. Um, it's rare that our areas cross over. But there was a fascinating article in The Guardian this week about smart mouth guards. People are building in some sensor technologies and using some AI to help analyse the results to help fight against brain injuries. This sounds really cool. The mouth guards are currently being tested in rugby, boxing and the NFL. By using the expression NFL, I guess they don't just mean the sport, they mean like the league, that I, level of professional I wonder athlete. if they mean US NFL rather than... Yeah, I think they do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. These are some international matches as well. Sounds like they had a bit of a show match in London on Sunday that they happen to be using this AI-powered mouth guard at. So what they're trying to do is when you're wearing them, they're trying to help identify on-field head impacts. What, the, do they have, like, accelerometer or something like that in them? Or? I am frantically scanning the article to understand a bit better. They've got a whole, they've got a whole helmet situation in that sport, ah, so they can right. also have sensors there. So I'm trying to understand if the mouth guard, because I haven't got a photo of the actual technology, is one of those ones that's, like, attached to the helmet, you know? That, oh, yes, yeah. We've seen, seen those in the movie. Yes, that's exactly what I'm <laughs> no. saying. Not an only fictional, never. Strong on the tech, not so strong on the sports side here. But Dr. Iana Falvey is World Rugby's chief medical officer and has called the results coming out of these mouth guards a game changer in identifying many of the 18% of concussions that come to light only after a match so that they think if they can capture it really fast and then put in mitigating things like, you know, immobilising someone's head and making sure that they're not further damaged themselves and then you know dealing with concussions and what have you sooner that that might have some more positive um, outcomes uh, yeah it's kind of fascinating anything um, to reduce brain injuries in sport would be yeah, super good yeah so they're saying in boxing it's particularly great because you know it's something that you can wear boxing you know it doesn't have to be in a helmet if it's in a mouth guard that's something you have as a boxer anyway so there you go anyway worth looking into more hopefully they'll get such good out of it that it'll become a general accessible technology anyway you can read uh more about that in the guardian got some events coming up we certainly do um it's seven days now until web direction summit and code leaders also by the web directions crew happening in sydney this this year 
So if you're building digital products, um, it's an awesome opportunity to update your skills in product management, front-end engineering, product design, product and growth marketing, content strategy, the React ecosystem and JavaScript. Oh, JavaScript, it's so funny to see it still mentioned. It's still relevant. It's holding on, so functional. Of course, they've said that all of this will be served up with a very big dollop of generative AI, which I thought was hilarious. Um, It's all you see at every tech conference everywhere now. I've never made it to Web Directions. After many, many years of going to Aotearoa's WebStock, I um, should have made it to this by now. Look, it's got an incredibly good reputation. Yeah, Uh, I have heard many good things. It's been going for a long time. Yeah, it is the sort of one that you want to try and get your workforce to pay for because it's not not in the affordable uh, aficionados. But good on them for, you know, I imagine paying their speakers it's, well. it's very reasonable, yeah. They also have an option to get a streaming-only ticket, which makes nice. things much more accessible. That includes real-time captioning and chat, which is awesome. To access that, you can take $100 off the price with the code STREAMING100, with the numerals 100, no space. Uh, so that's an opportunity. Check them out at webdirections.org. And uh, they put on a number of events through the years and in different sites. So, yeah, they really try and spread themselves around. Excellent. Uh, We've also got Yao Melbourne coming up November the 30th and December the 1st. And there's also a workshop on November the 29th. And that's nice and local, the Pullman and Albert Park. And Eric Meyer, who's the Director of Engineering at Facebook, and Anjali Leon, who's Impactful's Product Leadership. They're going to be speaking, as is Erica Pisani from Edge Computing and Jez Humble from Why Is My App Slow? Um, (laughs) before before we came on here, I was like, I wonder why it's called Yao. Yeah. I wonder if it stands for something. It does stand for something, but it doesn't stand for Y-O-W, Yao. It stands for Java and Object Orientation Conference, J-A-O-O, which is pronounced Yao if you're Danish. That's so obscure. You go. You're giving us the deep cuts, I not just on the music the now, but also on the conferences. I love it. I think Jez is uh, not from Why Is My App Slow so much as speaking oh, to Why My App Is speaking, Slow. speaking, right. Yes, yes. And uh, that sounds like a fantastic little session. Um, hey, we want to say a big thank you to our guests this evening. We spoke to Toby Walsh, who has a new book about AI out. It is absolutely a cracker. If you want a ton of examples, a ton of context to help you navigate the uh, the change that we're living through, it's it's a crazy time, then you should get your hands on faking it. Mm-hmm. I really liked that the, the book's opening line is, this book is out of date. That speaks to the speed of change. Toby calls it how it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it's all about artificial intelligence in a human world. And he really does bring that that clash of strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and risks and and sort of unpack it all um, quite beautifully. We also want to thank Steve Worthington from Swinburne University, unpacking digital wallets for us and the potential regulatory movements that the federal government might be making in that space. Sounds like those... Those ideas would be winners for consumers. Mm, especially if they introduce some more direct options as well. Hey, Joe, thanks for being in here with me. Thanks to our talks producers, Lou and Adam, who helps out now and then, particularly on the games front. As you know, he's a games expert. They look after us well. They certainly do. Um, we've been Bite Into it. We'll be back next Wednesday. 